This podcast is presented by Hanover Messe, your leading event for industrial AI. Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of the Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Peter Seberg, and my guest today is Chao Peng Li from Microsoft. Chao Peng and I are going to talk about Gen AI adoption or the adoption of generative AI. Hello, Chao Peng. Hey, hey, good, good to be here. Good to have you on the show, Xiaopeng. Let's start with you introducing yourself to our Industrial AI podcast listeners, please. Sure, sure. So um, Xiaopeng is my name. I work for Microsoft. I've been uh, in the AI space for quite some years now. For the past three years, I'm leading the AI business for Microsoft across the Western European market. It is a market where a lot of innovation and a lot of pioneering work are happening. So incredibly proud of what we have been doing you know, in, in the AI space with our customers and partners and looking forward to sharing more in the, in the coming episode. Okay. Yeah, we'll certainly do that. Interesting that you say so. Uh, an area where a lot of things are happening, which which maybe not always we ourselves are certain of. But yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll come to that uh, at some point in time. When I looked at your profile, and I think you 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 caught that as well that you we you and I actually studied at the same university in Delft, right? Absolutely. It's it's a tough one, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I remember spending a lot of time, maybe too many hours in, in a laboratory, uh, in, uh, not a laboratory, I mean, in a library, uh, you know, uh, studying for the exams, etc. But, you know, you, you laid a good foundation for my work today. You were there a little bit later than, than I was. But then again, I'm, I don't know. I haven't been there for quite some time. I assume that maybe at least the, the village, the city, Delft and its environments uh, has been probably changed a little bit. But I can very well imagine the atmosphere in which you have been studying there. So no need to uh, introduce uh, your company. I may assume that, you know, close to 100% of our listeners, if not exactly 100% of our listeners, <laughs> have heard about your company, Microsoft. So instead, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the area, maybe department, uh, where it is that you're based from, you already said a little bit, and do, do maybe a little bit of a, a quick introduction on, you know, the things that, uh, that you do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm personally based in Oslo, Norway. You know, right now it's a winter wonderland. <laughs> mm, and, right. and I work in a European organization. So uh, the European headquarters. So that means I work with colleagues uh, across the Europe and they're, you know, distributed uh, you know, from from London to Madrid, um, you know, to to, to Vienna, etc. So my discipline or my domain within uh, within Microsoft uh, is uh, the go to market function. If you think about, you know, what Microsoft does or what most software companies, you know, do, it's, it's essentially two bucket of things. The first bucket would be, you know, developing the products, right? That's everything from you know understanding the user needs to design. Uh, to development, uh, you know, infusing AI, data science, whatever. And then the second part is really to bring the products to the market, right? And that's everything from, you know, thinking about how to maybe lend the value proposition uh, to different industries, to different segments, to different personas, through events, content, campaign. 
but also how you do sales, right? Everything from, you know, the conversation with executives and the conversation with uh, the key decision makers and even the, the hands-on professionals. And also, you know, in terms of how you deliver your product and services to the customer in what we call the customer success stage of our business. And the, la- the last piece is really also working alongside of our whole partner ecosystem. On one hand, enabling them on our latest product innovations so they understand how to, you know, make the best out of them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, also jointly go to market with them, right? So that we bring products together uh, with their services to to serve our joint customers. Very good. Sounds a little bit like what I've been doing during the 90s <laughs> for a company <laughs> called Intel. And what I assume we were doing at that time for Intel was very interestingly, and in that maybe there's a stronger overlap because in, in that case, it was about selling, you know, a piece of hardware, like a chip, you know, Intel Inside. And we couldn't, although it was the Intel Inside, we had to, you know, make make people believe, you know, convince people why they would need to buy a PC notebook with Intel Inside. And we would go through software, you know, it's like, why would you need it? We don't want to go too much in detail. And you do the go-to-market for whatever is AI, AI-based products for Microsoft? Or? Yes, I'm leading the AI go-to-market strategy for Western Europe. My primary focus is on Azure AI. So that's our cloud platform. I mean, Azure is our cloud platform. And, and, and the vast majority of our AI platform services are inside Azure. But what has happened during 2023 is that we have now also infused the AI into pretty much, you know, every product and services we offer from Microsoft. I was going to say, right. Yeah. <laughs> now everything is AI, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, personal opinion, I, I feel like, you know, we are sort of, you know, transforming from a cloud company into an AI company, if I dare to say so. And, and my point is that in our cloud infrastructure, you have AI infused on the platform layer. We offer a lot of AI platform services and tools for, for developers and data scientists and machine learning engineers. And then on the on the software software layer, we also have different off-the-shelf products which are you know enhanced and infused with AI and which are you know ready to use, like all the co-pilots, right? We've been launching you know co-pilots almost every month in 2023. Uh, and and most of them are, are powered by you know large language models and other advanced AI technologies. Very good. Just uh, out of modesty, I believe you had suggested that we should be not spending too much time on on you as a as a, <laughs> as a company as Microsoft, and that mm-hmm. is okay. And also as a message to uh, the listeners for here, this is not going to be a sales talk by Chao Peng for you know buying Microsoft products. That's not the idea. We're gonna we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn from Chao Peng and and gonna ask him, you know, what it is that he has seen that he is seeing as part of his job being in the market. So let's start maybe with a specific question. If you hear people say that ChatGPT is the iPhone moment for AI, how would you react to that? So, you know, I have uh, sort of mixed uh, sentiments around this comment, right? I, I think, you know, when, when ChatGPT first came out, you know, in November, and then, you know, he, he, he has really propelled a lot of uh, excitement and discussions and momentum in the market, um, especially the beginning of 2023. And, and in my head, you know, it's a killer application, right? I mean, before ChatGPT, 
there has already been years of research on transformers and you know large language models, especially in academia or in more closed doors of research labs. But ChatGPT is really the application which brought a large language model and wrapped that into a simple interface and make that accessible to anyone, right? So I think that's the beauty of ChatGPT as a killer application. But if you look at iPhone, it's really an ecosystem because, you know, it's not only the, the hardware itself, it's the app store, it's the entire operating ecosystem. So, so that's why, you know, at first I was a bit skeptical when people talk about, you know, ChatGPT, it's the iPhone moment for AI, maybe from a, you know, hype democratization point of view. Yes, but not necessarily from an ecosystem point of view. But that's changing, right? Because two months ago or three months ago, I mean, OpenAI, they announced the GPT store. I think they just made that available. They did, right. Yes, a day or two ago, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So now it's different because they're actually creating an ecosystem. And I think, you know, they have this huge ambition to actually maybe turn the GPT store into a new type of you know ecosystem where everyone can build new GPTs. And there are like many applications within ChatGPT, right? More specialized and for specific, specific tasks. And then you can even you know uh, monetize on that. So I think that adds the ecosystem of flavor you know, on ChatGPT. So, so let's see how that turned out. But maybe this, this will actually be the, the, the iPhone moment in the AI industry. Very interesting. Maybe just one comment, if I, or just one question, if I may, then just in this, in this relationship, we're hearing so many things. We're not going to go into the details, but maybe it is interesting, at least for me, it is for listeners to, to get a feeling for, you know, when should I, listener, then maybe go to this store and when and what do I find there? And maybe when should I go to to what? To Bing or to any of the the Microsoft products? Is is that a thing you can comment on if you if you want to? Yeah, I, I can perhaps just give my you know personal opinion. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not an official statement or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I think you know there are a couple of stages. I guess the first stage would be just you know trying out this new Chat GPT or you know Chatbot thing, you know, powered by large language models. I think a good starting point would be the free version of ChatGPT or BingChat, right? BingChat is also free of charge and it's powered by GPT-4. Um, so then you, you get a sense on what our large language model powered chat interface can do or cannot, right? So I think that's a good starting point. And then when you start to look for specific use cases or specific applications uh, to address your certain needs, then I think, you know, the vast majority of use cases will probably be centered around productivity, right? Either maybe helping helping you to to to, to write a, um, a new document or, you know, respond to an email or summarize a document, etc. And and that can be done, you know, either through the, the chat interface, ChatGPT or BingChat, or you can also use the Copilot from Microsoft or you can also go to the GPT store and find a specific specialized GPT, which might you know work better for particular data or particular industry. So I think you know maybe that's the the second step, right? When you are looking more for more specific uh, needs and and wants. Okay, very good. Between those two, and the latter one is then at a cost, right? At, at least at the moment, right? Which, as an example, I'm doing, you know, twenty dollars, I believe, a month, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. I think you need to have access to ChatGPT Premium to access that. Yeah. Right. So, and these are then, of course, only the listeners' two options between <laughs> the the uh, the originator. I would agree with you. I mean, the technology originated by not necessarily one of those, but uh, the originator, the one that really brought the first 
product to the consumer. And then, as of course, I believe there's about 500,000, right, um, other <laughs> models, some oh, yeah. of other big uh, tech, other big tech companies like yourself, many, 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 many uh, open source. But um, so depending on what it is that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just a quick comment on that one. I was I was more answering from a consumer point of view, right? Yeah. You know? As an average consumer, but you're absolutely right. In the, in the enterprise space, so much is happening, right? All the tech giants they're infusing large language model into their product and services, and then you have a whole new wave of startups and scale ups who are really innovating with large language models. Right. No, and I, you answered my specific question on looking at between Microsoft and OpenAI, so that was perfectly okay. So. Before we then go into the details, dive in, and then we will be looking at, we are going to be concentrating today on use cases. In the beginning, more general, and then moving towards uh, industrial, because this, in the end, is the Industrial AI podcast. So, But let's start our chat with saying, what is actually generative AI? What is Gen AI? Yeah, so generative AI, as the name tells, it's generative, right? So that means, you know, it's AI models and systems which can generate content. And that content can be text, can be image, can be even, you know, audio, video uh, in some of the advanced multimodality models. So generative AI in my head, is a category of applications. But the technology powering generative AI is actually foundation models. And the foundation models are a broader set of uh, advanced AI models, and they, they serve as the foundation for application innovation. So within foundation models, you have a category called large language models. So they are focused on natural language understanding and generation, and they're pretty large. So that's what people normally call LLM, large language models. At least today they are. Well, most of them are still <laughs> pretty large. And maybe when we, we we'll talk a little bit technology, not too detailed later on as well. And maybe maybe before I forget, one of the things would be this. Yeah, I mean, part of the development, right? So, so they, they may not all stay large. I mean, some of them are growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but then other ones are growing smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So, but that's maybe a thing that we'll talk about later, because maybe you you can give us a first idea on you know the, the topic of today is that we're going to learn about the adoption of Gen AI, and you know we started talking in I believe November, and that's uh, that's now already two months two months gone. <laughs> I guess in those two months, it's almost on a daily basis that we see changes that it's almost impossible. So I'm so much looking forward to learning from you what you can share with us on the adoption of Gen AI. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your charge of Western Europe, but maybe, you, I don't know if you have a, a global view or a European view, what are the different markets, which are the markets that are really, you know, taking up and which which may be less, what are the languages, and, and maybe what is the data that you have to support your claims, so to say? Yeah, so Peter, that's like 20 questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I always do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so let's try to unfold, um, you know, on some of the uh, key topics you mentioned, and, and please guide me if I, you know, forget something here. Most certainly. Yeah. So so first on AI adoption, I think, you know, I had the pleasure to talk to many business and technology leaders in throughout 2023 about generative AI. And for me, it's also a huge learning process, right? Every company, every industry is different, but we also see some commonalities. So when I talk about AI adoption, I talk mainly from a 
enterprise point of view, right? So on the consumer side, it might look different. So in the enterprises, in organizations, when they're looking to adopt generative AI, you know, it comes in multiple stages. It also depends on the maturity of the company. If they have been working with AI in, you know, you know in, in the past on a more classic machine learning, and, and they have more competence and knowledge, maybe they would, you know, do multiple things at the same time. But for organizations who are relatively new, they normally start by exploring and understanding, you know, what is generative AI, what is large language model. So, of course, they started by doing training, but they all, quite often also develop a internal chat GPT. So basically, an in, internal chatbot powered by a large language model, maybe Azure OpenAI or something else for their employees to, you know, try out this technology. So then, you know, it's, it basically does the same thing with ChatGPT or Bing Chat does, but it's in a protected internal, private and secure environment, you know, for employees to safely explore the technology. So that's quite often the, the first step. And we see actually many of our customers and partners doing that in the early days of their uh, generative AI adoption. And, and the second step is when they start to maybe connect this internal, you know, chat interface with their own data. And and that's when when things get more interesting, right? For example, you can hook up this chat uh, chat interface with your HR information, uh, with your IT data, and then your employees can actually go to this chatbot, maybe host down your teams or something else, can ask questions about HR you know processes or IT policies, etc., without having to navigate you know two hundred share folders, um, you know, uh, or internal folders or SharePoint sites, etc., right? Let's stay here for a sec, if I, if I may, because I was going to ask you later, but now we're at the top of it, and, and then you can move on with answering my 24 questions. <laughs> this is so important, because I feel from the beginning that all of us, more so than, as you say, you concentrate on enterprise, the enterprises would love to, and as soon as they understand that that is what they can do, is have, of course, a couple of use cases internally, their own people or their customers, but at least they want to have the models trained and that's what i'm going to ask you on their specific information if it's internal and that is then the specific thing i'm talking about is oh i want to be very very careful to have my hr if it's general information of how to deal but still i want to keep it internal what is today then is there one are there several ways to make sure that, number one, if people are just trying things out, that they don't need to be afraid that, oh, I'm, I just shared a piece of information and now it's part of the foundation model and the world is going to see it. What is the, what is the one or the two different ways that enterprises today can actually do so? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I would say twofold. One thing is that you need to, you need to distinguish between what is a consumer application and what is an enterprise ready application, right? So like ChatGPT, Bing Chat, they're developed for the consumers to to try out this technology and for personal use. So right. if if you ask questions and and you know provide uh you know data from a, from your corporate and that's leakage, right? And you don't want to do that. So you want to look for enterprise ready solution. And and there are, you know, options out there. For example, we also launched Bing Chat Enterprise, which is which comes with data protection, right? So so everything stays within your deployment uh, of Bing Chat. And then I think ChatGPT they also ha- have announced the ChatGPT Enterprise and it probably also comes with um, commercial data protection. But like I mentioned, you know, a lot of our customers also choose to develop their own chatbot within their own cloud environment, right? 
And then it's fully in control by themselves. And they're just, you know, using a, a large language model, you know, from one of the cl- cloud providers or from open source. But then they have this, um, you know, chatbot within their own secure private environment. So that's how you safeguard, you know, uh, your corporate data. So basically you use, if it's, let's say, open source, you, you take whatever, I don't know. I, I just want to get a feeling for it. you take the foundation model and then you, you know, you add, you fine tune, you add your company data to it. And then in such a way that you do it like on premise, you know, it's not that, that you're doing it or maybe you are, I don't know. Maybe you are still doing it even in the Azure, in this case cloud but that's but that's an only in your section of that cloud so nobody else can access it or yeah, yeah, yeah. So most customers actually do this in the cloud because it's it's just easier because things are pre-built and configured. And the thing is, you know, most most organizations they don't need to touch the model at all. So there's no fine-tuning, there's no training because the models are pre-trained. And what they do here is basically what we call are, I mean, RAG, Retrieval Augmented. RAG is the big, the big yeah. acronym of, of 2023. It's even going to be bigger in 2024. Yeah, yeah Explain definitely. us what is RAG. Yeah, so it, it's a pattern to combine a generic large language model with specific data set. So, so if you think about the capabilities that com- comes from model, um, you know, a couple of things, you know, the model understand, you know, uh, content and text, and then the model can also generate the content and text. So if we talk from a text point of view, the model has linguistic capability and the model has some reasoning capability and the model has some knowledge from the training data. But the training data might be outdated and also might contain bias, you know, because the internet is is biased, you know, uh, by default. So what you want to do is to, you know, ask the model to reason over your own data. So basically, you can provide a set of documents or you can point the model to a database that you have internally where you have, you know, um, verified knowledge as a source. And then when the model, you know, derive an answer to your question, you will actually look into the data uh, it's like having, it's like, think about having a new employee, you give them a, a manual, right? And then when they, when you ask them a question, they would look up the manual first, and then they synthesize and distill the information into a concise answer to you. And that's essentially uh, what happens in Iraq. The large language model would look into the documents and database that you provided, and then you know, find the right, right section and right part of that document, and then summarize uh, and 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 then return to you in a concise, natural language manner. Right, that's what it stands for: retrieval augmented generation. I believe, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good. Stay with the example of the HR internal. Um, one question then is: so if uh, if HR decides they're going to do this, and then one HR employee takes the one thousand documents they have, it doesn't matter the number, so they do one time rack, uh, and then from the next time on, if if, um, if then employees are asking questions, do they do they all the time each time need to provide that um, that rack information as well, or is it only like a single time and then so the HR team knows? Okay, now the model knows all there is to know about our company HR policy. I think this depends on you know how the rack pattern is implemented at the organization, and and to be honest, I'm not a you know technical expert on rack myself either. But I think you know you have the opportunity to, for example 
every time you ask the question to a mod model, you provide specific documents. You can do that. So that's on an ad hoc, ad hoc basis. But you can also do more advanced rug where you connect the large language model with, uh, with the embeddings, with the vector storage. And so that's where you can probably you know, have some, you know, have some documents or internal knowledge pre-process that maybe even, what's that word, maybe even sustain that, you know, for multiple uh, sessions, multiple conversations. But this part needs to be verified by technical architecture, right? Sure, sure, that's okay. Okay, so we talked about business leaders, enterprise. One uh, one second thing I was going to ask, machine learning you mentioned, uh, are we still going to have the the original machine learning from the last two years (laughs) or is everything going to be large language Oh, absolutely, yes. So large language model is not going to be the answer to everything. Not the only one, okay. Yeah, it's like the hot, hottest topic right now. It's it's the buzzing topic, but it's not the answer to everything. If you think about some of the use cases like anomaly detection or demand forecast, and or you know some of the use cases related to computer vision, I think I think many of the use cases would benefit from a much smaller, you know, much more performant and efficient model than a large energy model, right? So I think you know what we encourage our you know customers to do is start by understanding your your needs and, and and your challenges in your business and then identify the use cases and then we can talk about you know what's the technology what's the model that you should use i recall and it, and it was not just on the microsoft platform i think the other providers if they're aws google all the other ones do a similar approach and take you by the hand and this taking by the hand was happening already when i was looking maybe I, maybe like four years ago, you know, uh, four or five years ago, at kind of at the beginning when it was when things were opening up, and you would take you know customers by the hand and say what it is you want to do. I I recall exactly in a PowerPoint slide that I was looking at. And then below it are all the different uh, algorithms, which some of some of us, some of the listeners know and use them, and other ones do not need to, but they just learn to understand what it is they can do. So, okay, uh, let's let's look into that because you know we're just talking a lot about language models all the time in the industrial environment, and of course, as you say, we've been using other types of algorithms in the past, and I do believe that you know we that some of our listeners uh, are working on you know can we use large language models also to do like eg predictive maintenance and if that's then in the end the right thing to do or not uh, we'll find out but maybe it's a combination so i interrupted you with you know you were explaining um you know what it is that you have learned uh, where is the adoption of uh, of chen ai yeah, so I put things into four stages when it comes to generative AI adoption. I think I talked about the first two already. The first one is basically try out the technology with the internal chatbot, the internal version of ChatGPT, if you like. And the second is when you start to do rock, right? You start to connect that chatbot with your internal data, internal knowledge. And to be honest, just maybe to add a few words on that, you know, when we say retrieval augmented generation, it starts with the retrieval. You're basically retrieving information internally, but instead of doing the more word matching search, you're you're actually doing conversational search, right? You're asking questions and then uh, the large language model help you uh, analyze, retrieve, and then summarize information. Uh, so that's the first two, um, you know, stages. And then... After that, you know, organizations normally have built up some confidence and some knowledge around using large language models. They start to look into more use cases. And the third stage, we see quite often, you know, 
organizations start to identify some internal use cases related to different business processes that they can perhaps, you know, optimize or, or automate. You know, one example could be looking into automatic processing of internal documents, everything from, you know, invoices to, you know, accounting documents and stuff like that. And, and we see customers, you know, implementing large language models in maybe the finance or accounting department or after sales department to autom- automatically handle claims and invoices, etc. And this is where, you know, large language model will be combined quite often with a OCR solution or a document intelligence solution. But then in that case, you can not only extract key information from the right documents, you can even chat you know, and then summarize, um, you know, um, the documents. So I think that's that's is essentially document intelligence on steroids with large language model, if you like. And that's that's you know about automatic processing of different documents. And then we also see, you know, depending on the industry, organizations using you know large language models maybe for log analysis, right? We 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 have worked with with a security solution provider, and they have the log from different you know physical equipments they have, and they used to spend like you know. Um, maybe hundreds of hours, you know, by human beings reviewing the log manually. And now they actually use GPT-4 to analyze analyze that within a matter of minutes and seconds. And then, of course, the model can help you flag where you as a human need to maybe double click and, you know, verify. Uh, But it does the sort of the the groundwork for you. So I think that's also a good example. And and the the last one maybe I want to mention is uh, like anomaly detection, right? You can do that absolutely with a with a more classic, smaller machine learning model. But what we see, um, you know, some of the organizations within the finance sector doing is they also now develop a natural language interface and then empowered by large language model, by the way. And then they can actually ask questions, you know, to this natural language interface, this chatbot, which then helps the financial analyst to comb through vast amount of financial documents and then maybe finding the right signals and then surface back to them in a concise manner uh, and, and basically, you know, telling them, hey, maybe you need to double click on this particular document because it's marked as high risk based on the analysis. I believe that that's exactly where a lot of uh, research is going on. And we, Robert and I, have heard that maybe, um, you know, time series, which is the the type of data we have in industrial environment are difficult or maybe difficult to to consume for large language models. I'm not sure. Maybe someone is going to find a solution. But in the end, at least, I would also assume that the large language model is going to at least be the the user interface, so the human human interface <laughs> towards uh, the data, where in the past it has been, you know, some some kind of algorithm finding patterns, patterns, positive and negative. <clears throat> in this case, you know, finding the anomalies, but putting the large language models in front of it, you know, asking or or and then put it the other way around, making it preventive. So the algorithm, the application coming back <clears throat> to the human and saying, oh, something is going to happen there right yeah absolutely and i personally envision more and more use cases going forward will be enabled by uh, a combination of uh, multiple ai models and and like you said you know the large language model might reside more on the user side right because it's it's more about making the interaction between um, a, a system and a user intuitive and simple right uh, through natural language 
But then, you know, deeper down, maybe you have other models specifically for, I don't know, demand forecasting or analyzing seismic data. So that's the model running there doing that specific thing. Uh, but on the surface, you have the large language model orchestrating maybe multiple deeper models, uh, you know, more specialized models, and then also handling the interaction between uh, the back end system and uh, uh, the front end and user interaction. Okay, so thanks for this uh, introduction into your your view on the different steps. Let's move into a couple of use cases because there is this there is this topic which is close to my heart is too strongly said, but it's an important topic and it has all to do with RAG and RAG has all to do with the human interface. And my feeling is that you know, and I consuming as most listeners know. Most of you know whatever I learn is through LinkedIn, and what's happening on LinkedIn on a day-to-day basis, with you know specifically to the development of the large language models, is so strongly around. Um, I would say the front end, and that's what we just talked about of communicating with the large language models. And RAG is the big thing, and I think that's in itself perfect i'm just i'm just only asking the, the the general question is like should the providers and um, of the large language models of which is one you know openai microsoft and all the other ones should the developers not you know learn by what it is they and all the other people around are developing on the front end side and not try to put it in the back end what i mean is couldn't we as humans not expect you know the large language models to learn the way that is that we want to communicate rather than that we need to you know learn prompting learn rack learn to do abc etc do you have a view on that? Do you have a view on where that is going? First, I, I want to just dis- distinguish RAG and prompting, right? Because, you know, RAG is about providing additional knowledge to the model. And maybe in the future, I don't know, with things like Neuralink, <laughs> you can, you know, help a large language model tap, tap into your... Uh, I'm not sure I want to do that, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe that's a, an alternative in tapping into your human knowledge. But, but right now, a lot of knowledge resides in documents or databases, especially company-specific knowledge and data, right? So if you want to, if you want the model to focus on that, then you need to connect the model with your prescribed uh, source of knowledge. And that, that's essentially what we do with RAG. But, but to a question on, on prompting, it, it's such a new domain. And, you know, prompt engineering is also rising as a very exciting discipline. Uh, it has got a lot of attention. And there are people who, you know, claim to be professional prompt engineers already on LinkedIn, right? And people have so many different titles on LinkedIn. Anyway, but to your point on if we want large language models or foundation models in general to adapt to how we communicate as humans and not caring so much about prompting. I think that's that's going to happen because right now, when we leverage large, large language models for specific uh, use cases, especially if you're asking, let's say, a model to generate an image of certain style, of certain you know artistic style, certain lighting, etc., you have to be quite specific um, on describing the desired uh, image you want the model to generate. And, and that's where we already start to see a distinction. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, advertise OpenAI models. They're a close partner. But if you think about mid-journey, their models are super strong and they create, you know, realistic and stunning photos and, and images. 
But to prompt the mid-journey model, you have to follow certain format and you have to be very concise and it's not really natural language. You're basically using a lot of comma and use a lot of keyword. But if you do that with the, with the DALI 3, for example, the latest uh, tech-to-image model from OpenAI, you can actually just use natural language, right? So there you already start to see the difference. Oh, that's my point. Well, yeah, very good, very good, very good. And the thing I'm, I'm hearing is, uh, or what my brain is kind of hearing, as I like to say, by listening to you, is like it has to do a lot with, almost like with culture as well. You know, I'm from the Netherlands. I live in Germany. You know, you need a certain time to find out the way the people, you know, you were born, I don't know, uh, you studied in Delft, now live in Oslo. Uh, I have a Swedish friend. I go to the United States already on that level because there was this person from OpenAI. I think it was a person called Kilpatrick, I believe. And he was saying, you know, yeah, you know, prompting is not going to be the big thing. And I said, oh, you know, it's already been Christmas because that's exactly what I was expecting as well. But he talks about reading, writing, and listening, are those the three, which almost sound like, you know, human skills. Are we going to, you know, better communicate as humans as well? But the, you gave a good example, I believe. And my, my strong feeling is that if the large language are going to be there for all of us, then, you know, it is the way that the large language is going to react to our question, to the thing that is that we want, that, you know, maybe it should trigger this kind of interactive way of doing things rather than, and I think that today we have prompt engineers perfectly fine. I do not, I cannot imagine that that is going to be, uh, and those of you, dear listeners who are, don't take it personal, but that that's going to be an activity that we're going to still have, you know, a year or two from now. My, my belief is that, uh, that the provider of the LLM that is going to bring the solution that is there for all of us to interact is going to be the one that humans are going to choose, is my strong belief. Yeah, and, and Peter, maybe just to add a bit color to that, I think one thing is maybe about the intrinsic capability of the model itself and how it handles um, input in natural language, like we talk about the difference between mid-journey and DALI 3. Uh, but the other thing would also be what we call meta prompt. So basically, when an organization, you know, a solution with a large language model, uh, of course, the user will be prompting, you know, when they use the application, but you can also have some, you know, system message or meta prompt hidden behind the scene, right? That's basically the context you're providing to the model as the developer. And and you can maybe tell the model to behave in any under any circumstances, behave as a customer service agent or only answer questions related to IT, right? And that's the type of messages you can, you know, store behind the scene. And it doesn't matter how the user prompt, and this will be additional context added to uh, the user's prompt. So that's what we call meta prompt. And that's another technique that can be used. Or then the store that, you know, has just opened. And then, yeah, you're going to say, you know, this is, you know, ask Robert, for example, then, you know, Robert is going to, uh, and, and that's what Sam showed two months ago, right? You know, yeah, yeah. he is a specialist in what, in uh, company development, whatever it is, you load your information. Exactly. Uh, and then you give it to somebody else. And you say, okay, this is the Peter GPT. If you want to, you know, be consulted by Peter, ask the Peter GPT. Very good. That's an excellent example, by the way. 
So give us, give us the first example. Share with us, please, Xiaopeng, the first example of a use case where you've run into. Yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe just to carry on the adoption journey, I talked about the third space now, you know, where customers identify internal business processes and infuse AI into that. And, and one of the areas that I forgot to mention is really in the contact center space. So a lot of, you know, large telcos or, you know, insurance companies and many other industries, they run large contact centers. And that's also where we see a lot of, you know, use cases being powered by AI, you know, from having a 24-7 available actually intelligent chatbot powered by large language model that can actually you know have natural language conversation with the customers that's clearly one use case a lot of uh, organizations are now uh, replacing their if i dare to sit down bots with uh, large language model powered chatbots and also within the contact center um, you can also use large language models to help uh, the agents the human agents to summarize the conversation between them and the customers or even analyze the core transcriptions and and to discover insights for you know product planning campaign planning etc and the last part stage 4 is where things become quite interesting I, i'm personally super excited about this stage is where you know we start to see organizations start to combine their industry expertise with large language model and start to build industry-specific co-pilots. I mean, co-pilot is the term that we started to use for Microsoft, but now it's also adopted by, you know, uh, different organizations out there. Essentially, it's it's a AI-powered virtual assistant that can help humans to perform certain tasks. And let me just, you know, mention a couple of examples. So we, we have been working with a Swedish fashion retailer called Lindex, and they have actually built a Lindex Copilot, which uh, is based on Azure OpenAI, but combined with their knowledge and data about store operations. So now every time they onboard a new employee or they uh, they train a new employee, you know, they don't always have to have a more senior employee, you know, uh, following them and giving them instructions on a daily basis. The employee can actually talk to Lindex Copilot on a tablet or a mobile application. And then based on where, which store you're in and based on uh, your profile and preference, you, you will give you personalized you know, answers and you know, tips. Managing the store, right? Everything from uh, maybe setting up the different products within the store and maybe checking on inventory and maybe you know, having guidance on how to have a com- pleasant conversation with the customer. And those are things that you can actually consult and get advice from this Lindex Copilot. I found that really interesting because it, it's, it's really about making the employees in the store more confident and, and, and more knowledgeable so they can be at their best when serving the customers. And that eventually would bring better customer experience. Very good. Yeah, so, so this is in the retail space. And another example I want to mention is a Icelandic startup. Uh, it's called Lucinity. And, you know, they have been building software solutions for uh, anti-money laundry for quite some time. And in 2023, we have started working together and they looked into including uh, the GPT models into uh, their solution, and they launched something called Lucy, and that's the name of their AI copilot for anti-money laundry. And so, essentially, instead of having the anti-money laundry specialist reviewing all the documents manually, because that's actually what they do nowadays in the industry, they can have large language model you know, help them browse through vast amount of documents and highlight where there are potential risks and red flags. And then the financial analyst or crime investigator can actually then look into specific documents and sort of, sort of information to identify risks around anti-model laundry. So I think this is, this is an example where you can use a large language model to enhance 
the efficiency in processing information, but also acting as a natural language interface between you and the task that you are performing uh, behind uh, behind the systems. Very good. What do we have in the industrial space? In the industrial space, you know, examples start to appear in the, in, the, in the past couple of months. And I think since we got in touch on LinkedIn, there have been quite a few new examples. And, and that, that's super exciting. One thing I want to mention is uh, particularly from the automotive space. And um, I think, Peter, you're based in Germany, right? Yep, exactly. Yes. So you probably have seen an example of Mercedes already, right? They have enhanced their in-car voice assistant with the ChatGPT model um, on Azure. And now the drivers can have a truly natural language uh, conversation with the in-car voice assistant. And then, you know, the, the assistant can perform multiple tasks. And a similar example is from TomTom. And they have also, you know, announced this collaboration with us. And, and we're actually together at CES uh, nowadays demonstrating. All right. Yeah. Yeah, the new in-car voice assistant from TomTom. And and the difference here is that TomTom, they actually, they build a platform. So they have a digital cockpit, you know, infused with generative AI. And then they can provide this solution to other car manufacturers for them to incorporate. So this is in the, in the, in the automotive space. And also in the manufacturing space, as a heavy industry, we also see have seen some really exciting examples. One is Siemens. You know, we have also announced the partnership uh, with them, and we have a similar partnership with, with ABB as well, where we're looking to bringing the power of generative AI into the industrial software uh, that Siemens and ABB are building, respectively, of course. And and so that's everything from predictive maintenance to anomaly detection to uh, to quality management, etc. Uh, and also, you know, maybe also analyzing IT and OT data, right, from the different systems, engineering systems and, and, and industrial equipments that they are operating. Yes, uh, Robert will actually be doing an interview in these days with uh, Boris Scheringer from uh, Siemens and the representative from Schaeffler on exactly this topic of the Siemens Industrial Co-Pilot. So we're going to hear uh, more in uh, in detail about that one. I also heard about Volkswagen this week, by the way, on CES as well. Yes, yes. That's where then typically maybe maybe one more technical and then we probably need to come to a close at some point um, is then certain people are then afraid of the hallucinations. How, how do you see hallucinations being, you know, brought down to um, to zero if possible, <laughs> you know, especially in a car, you know. Depending on maybe you limit the kind of questions or you limit the kind of answers. I don't know how how that is kind of thing. And and in a car is one thing uh, is driving a car or driving sort of same uh, production line is very similar. You know, where there's robots and heavy gear and everything. How how do we make sure that the potential of the hallucinations with the solution that we use in that kind of environment is going to be you know limited uh, or possibly you know being brought down to zero? Yeah. So I mean, first, hallucination is an intrinsic challenge within large language models, right? No large language model is free from that. But there are effective techniques for mitigating that, and and I think we actually touched upon you know two of those already. The first one is really around prompt engineering and specifically meta prompting. So basically, you can set you know guardrails around the model already. 
and ask the model to maybe focus on certain topics and avoid answer certain questions. So that's one way. So maybe you know, you know what the model, maybe you have higher confidence of the model answering questions for certain topics. So you focus on that. So that's from meta prompting. But the other one, which we see even more use is actually RUG, right? Because that's where instead of asking the model to answer based on its training data or based on the open internet or based on what the model might make up, which is hallucination, you ask the model to answer based on prescribed source of data and information, right? So that's where you provide specific set of verified, assured documents or database uh, for the model to derive answer from. And that's probably by far the most effective technique for mitigating hallucination. Maybe on, on this one, I just want to make... Um, you know, mention one example. Also in the industrial space, it's a uh, it's a company called Cognite. So it's uh, it's based out based out of uh, Norway, Oslo actually. So they they have been building uh, you know data platform for asset heavy industry. They started within the energy space, but they're also expanding uh, into other industries verticals. So they have also launched a AI copilot together with us uh, for industrial data. So before adopting Gen AI, they have already built a uh, data platform for contextualization, really bridging uh, the data from OT systems to IT systems. And now they basically build a new natural language interface on top of data platform. So the data analyst and the business analyst can actually uh, access data, analyze data in a much more intuitive manner. And one thing they have done to mitigate hallucination is to build up internal what they call industrial knowledge graph. And that's essentially their way of building a, a brain of verified and assured knowledge from OT and IT systems. And then they use that in a rug deployment with a large language model. And then that combination makes their solutions, you know, uh, I would say hallucin free, but, you know, I haven't tried firsthand, but, you know, that's at least their ambition. I, I looked into Cognite. I, I may contact them. Very interesting. Uh, what I can say is, is my feeling is of the solution you are uh, you you are suggesting. You know, as RAC as the the top level is is from my perspective and most listeners probably actually haven't heard of it you know i mean it all started in the 1950s 60s and later on it was called symbolic ai right and we had our ai windows and everything and oh and there are, we still have you know a handful or should i say hundreds thousands don't take it personal people of people who have all for their lifetime been looking at this symbolic ai and then came machine learning then called sub symbolic and in the end it's the combination of those two worlds of defining categorizing for as an example through knowledge graphs the world and then take your sub-symbolic machine learning transformer large language models and ask them to go into your kind of organized world and then yes i i would agree that you can theoretically then can get answers that are you know 100 percent within the space that you have provided that you have trained your model with right yeah and the last thing i might add is that depending on how mission critical uh, the use case and application is you need to really assure that the humans are in the loop right so there there might be you know business processes of low risk and that you can you know trust the AI system to handle uh, independently. Uh, but there are, you know, use cases where you want to have human to review the recommendation, uh, to govern the decision from the AI systems, 
uh, before you actually put that into use. Very good. Uh, Chopang, final question. If you have, please share with us a view on the status of Gen AI in different parts of the world, US, China, Asia, uh, Europe, and, and how is Gen AI going to change, you know, going to change the world of, you know, specifically for us here in this world of the industrial uh, AI? Uh, I think before the explosive development, if I can say, uh, around generative AI, there has already been a quite a well-acknowledged view out there that, you know, US and China are leading in the AI space and Europe has been lagging a bit behind. And, and you know, for different reasons. I mean, for US, you, they, they have, you know, accumulated strong competence from research development and also they are also in a more favorable regulatory environment. Similarly in China, when it comes to regulation, but also in China, they um, a lot of the a lot of the consumer tech giants they have you know access to a huge amount of data, which helps them train um, massive and powerful AI models, especially for the for the consumer space. But now with generative AI, I I think you know it's it's too early to say, uh, but there are a couple of things will which will definitely decide if the the landscape will be changed or will remain. Uh, one thing is the fact that, you know, most of the use cases will be powered by pre-trained models. So that means, you know, not every organization needs to train their own model, right? You have large language models or smaller language models, you know, provided by tech giants or specialized model developers. And there is a opportunity for European organizations to accelerate on the application of the models, right? Like, I mean, of course, there are very interesting, exciting players like Mistral out of Europe building, uh, you know, large language models, foundation models as well. But the vast majority of European organizations, they don't have to build a model. They can just focus on creating value and accelerate adoption and creating application, innovative applications, right, for European organizations or even for for the globe. So, So I think, you know, maybe we can look at you know, the comparison between AI development across the three regions, uh, not only from a AI development point of view, but also from an AI, applied AI, you know, application point of view. And, and that might give a, a slightly different landscape. Sounds great to me. And I, I, yeah, I, I would tend to, to agree. And in the end, sure, I mean, it, this differentiation is very uh, useful. But in the end, for us, uh, for the listeners, for the industrial space, I think in the end, the, the use cases, the applications are going to be built on the vast amount of knowledge capabilities of 100 years, 100 and more years of industrial production. And that, that knowledge is, you know, needs to somehow be put into, in this case, industrial knowledge. And I think you've been giving us examples. Um, of how that can be done and uh, and also that uh, that it will be done actually so Chopang. yeah can i maybe just add to that peter just quickly i just want to say that you know europe is um you know has a long history and like you said especially in, in some of the industrial space like manufacturing automotive and also fine you know in financial sector it has been leading you know for many years and the accumul- accumulated knowledge and expertise will play a key role in AI application, because many of the examples we talked about need to uh, need organizations to combine a generic large language model 
with industry expertise, right? So that's where you know a European organization will definitely shine. Uh, so maybe in my head, actually, we should expect to see even more industry-specific co-pilots, you know, uh, coming out of Europe based on the accumulated knowledge. That's what I expect as well. That's up to you, dear listeners, to uh, to make them to to produce them, right? So, Chopang, thank you very much. Uh, listeners that uh, maybe want to get in touch with you, they can do so. You suggested by uh, by LinkedIn. Xiaopeng Li is with an X-I-A-O-P-E-N-G and then Li like L-I. Otherwise, if you, the listeners, have any questions, comments, as always, please send a short email to peter at aipod.de. I'm uh, very happy that you stay with us so far. Looking forward to have you with us again. And um, Xiaopeng, thank you very much. And I'm going to try to say, have a good day in your language. Ha en fin dak. That's impressive. You speak oh, much better Norwegian than I do. <laughs> But thank you so much, Peter, for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.